This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, and is a quite timely message, I might add, in light of the momentous occasion that our church will undergo at the end of this service. I mean, every message is timely, right? But as I studied the passage and prepared for today, it was just uh, shocking to me how uh, I could not have chosen a better passage uh, for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. And the title for this message is Strive to Build the church. And the word of God says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God, loving Father, We pray now, Lord, that as we begin to walk through this passage of Scripture, word by word, verse by verse, clause by clause, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your word. Father, I recognize that I am a mere man. I'm only a vessel, Lord God. And so I pray that you would take hold of my mind and my words, that you would enable me to choose my words carefully, to be faithful to the text, and should I say anything that is contrary to biblical truth, Lord, I pray that you would strike it from the minds of those who are here and those who may listen to this message later. Father, in the end, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, Help us to be true to your word. But above all, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply the message of this text to our lives and to this church, Lord. That we would not simply gain more theological knowledge, Lord God, but that we would be transformed even more into the character of your Son and that this church, Grace Reformed, would bring you great honor and glory for many years to come. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. <clears throat> Human beings, by nature, have a desire to feel important, to feel special, to feel needed, to feel noticed, at least to some degree, and in their own way. I think this is true of all human beings. I think this is even true of the quote-unquote introvert who does not want to be noticed or seen. I think that in their own way, they still want to be noticed. They want to feel important to someone. They want to feel special and needed to someone because no one ever wants to be told. No one, even the introvert, wants to be told, you don't matter. You are insignificant. No one needs you. No one wants you. No one would like to hear those words. If the introvert were to die he would want someone to notice that. We all desire to be noticed to some degree, for people to know that we exist, to feel important, to feel special, to feel needed. We all have that desire. This is what's called, if you want to give it one word, pride. This is called pride. It is the desire to be made much of by someone. And depending on the level of your pride, it can be either one person that you desire to be made much of, or it's a lot of people that you desire to be made much of. We all have it. We all struggle with it. And if you say that you don't have it, well, there's an indication right there that you do have it. And the goal of the Christian life is to kill it, to kill our pride. Whatever amount there is within us, that is what we should spend all of our days striving to do, as John Owen so uh, richly puts it in his book, The Mortification of Sin. We ought to make it our business, he says, every day to be killing sin. We should never cease from a moment, for a moment, from killing our sin and engaging in that business. Because either we will be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Either we will be killing our pride or our pride will be killing us. We need to kill the desire to be made much of. Even the great Charles Spurgeon struggled with pride, believe it or not. From time to time, he tells of a story of in the year 1852, Spurgeon had been wrestling with the desire to go to college. As many of you know, he was not college educated. And uh, he had been wrestling with that desire. He had just started in pastoral ministry. Things were going well. 
He was successful by all accounts in ministry, but nonetheless, he felt that he was lacking something without formal theological training. And there were many in his life who encouraged him to do so. Many friends, many members of his church. He wrote to his own father in a letter asking his father's advice on whether or not he should attempt to go to college while in pastoral ministry. And his father wrote back and encouraged him, yes, I I think you should. It would only benefit you to do so. And so Charles Spurgeon had a friend who, uh, by the name of uh, Mr. McMillan, who was a publisher at the time. And uh, this friend arranged for Spurgeon to meet with a one Mr. Angus, who happened to be the principal of Stepney College, which was a Bible college in London at that time. And so his friend, Mr. McMillan, had arranged for Spurgeon to meet with the president of Stepney College uh, in his home, in Mr. McMillan's home, and uh, discuss the possibility of Spurgeon taking college classes and beginning his journey of receiving formal theological training. Well, Spurgeon, um, always being the punctual individual that he was, he was never late to anything. If he was on time, he was late, according to his own clock. He arrived at Mr. McMillan's home uh, a few minutes early. And when he arrived, the servant girl opened the door and and she showed him in and she showed him into a, a drawing room and uh, asked him to be seated and just wait here uh, until your guest arrives. A few minutes later, Mr. Angus arrived. And for some reason that no one has ever been able to explain, that same servant girl led him to a different drawing room and asked him to have a seat and completely forgot that Spurgeon was in another room. He waited upwards of two hours. He finally goes out and says to the servant girl, where is the person that I was to be meeting with? Oh, he left a long time ago, thinking that you did not show up. And of course, she apologized. But it doesn't change the fact that Spurgeon was forgotten. Spurgeon admitted later in life that he felt at that moment so incredibly insignificant and discouraged by it all. On the way home, he said that he prayed and spoke at length to the Lord about his discouragement, about his feelings of being insignificant. And he said that the word of the Lord came to him powerfully as if a voice spoke to him. And the voice said this, Seek thou great things for thyself, seek them not. Spurgeon later wrote, quote, I remembered the poor but loving people to whom I ministered, and the souls which had been given are in my humble charge. And though I anticipated obscurity and poverty as a result, yet I did then and there renounce the offer of collegiate instruction, determining to remain preaching the word so long as I had strength to do it. Close quote. Spurgeon came to understand at a very early age that it is not about impressing people. 
It's not about making a name for yourself. It's not about being made much of other. It's not about being remembered by church history. Of course, all of these things pertain to Spurgeon. But nonetheless, he came to realize that it's simply about ministering and serving God's people. And whatever God would choose to do with Spurgeon in his life, then so be it. Whether he be remembered or whether, as he said, he, although I anticipated obscurity and poverty as a result, the only thing that mattered to him was serving God and serving his people. This is what Paul is getting at in our text. He does this by means of three points and two illustrations in this passage. Paul is going to make three points and two illustrations, not in that order. He'll make a point, then he'll use two illustrations to illustrate that point, and then he will follow that up with two applicable points, two points of application for the church. And point number one goes like this. When it comes to communicative gifts, tongues without an interpreter is the least beneficial. When it comes to gifts of communication, tongues without an interpreter is the least beneficial. He says in verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Notice that the other gifts that he lists here are all communicative gifts, the gift of revelation, of revealing something to someone else that has not or was not previously known. The gift of knowledge, of imparting knowledge to someone else. The gift of prophecy, again, speaking something to someone else that they did not previously know. The gift of teaching. These are all communicative gifts. These are all gifts which convey information in some way of which tongues is, or at least should be, included It's a communicative gift, but not by itself. Paul's point is that unlike the other communicative gifts, tongues is pointless without an interpreter. It's the one gift that needs someone else or another gift in order to be beneficial to the church. It is even less beneficial than the non-communicative gifts like for example, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, he mentions the gift of healing, the gift of helping, the gift of administrating. Those are all gifts that by themselves can be enormously beneficial to other people, right? The gift of healing, the gift of helping, the gift of administrating, being able to organize things, but not the gift of tongues, Tongues without an interpreter blesses no one, at least not very much. I say that because if you've ever been someplace where someone is is praying or maybe you've even been a part of a worship service where they were singing in a foreign language, if you've done a short-term missionary trip, 
You're blessed to a small degree because you recognize, oh, they're worshiping God. How wonderful. Or this person is obviously praying to God. How wonderful. But you have no idea what they're saying. You have no idea what they're singing. Because you don't know the language. So it's only mildly beneficial. So Paul then offers two illustrations in order to prove his point. Notice the first illustration in verse 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? It's an obvious point that he's making, but I think it's a very good point that he's making. If an instrument that is severely out of tune is played, it's just noise. Like when a piano is just built or, or maybe a harp, he uses the harp. You know, they, somebody's got to build those things the first time, right? They get built somewhere and they put the strings on them. Well, as soon as they put the strings on them, if someone comes along with a sheet of music and starts playing it, even if they're following the sheet music, it's horrible. No one's going to know at all what you're playing. What? That's just noise. It's just a racket because it's all out of tune. It has to be tuned in order for it to make sense to those that are hearing it, in order for it to be a blessing. An out-of-tune piano that is played with all of your heart is just noise to those who are hearing it. Stop with the racket, right? Either tune the piano or stop playing all together. Paul's point is that this is the gift of tongues without an interpreter. Those are some harsh words almost, right? Without an interpreter, it's just, it's just noise. No one knows what is being said. He then offers a second illustration to make his point. He really wants to drive home this point. And it's about tongues, right? Get this, Paul says, understand what I'm trying to say to you. I think it becomes obvious that in the church of Corinth, there was one particular gift that everybody seemed to want. Paul is focusing very heavily upon this one gift. And so he says in verse 8, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? This is really even a better illustration, uh, I think, because in the first century Roman world, some of you may have watched the video that I sent. I found it quite fascinating, kind of the historical nerd that I am. I read all kinds of articles on the Roman cornu and how it was uh, discovered. And the, the actual cornu that was uh, uncovered in Pompeii is in the British Museum, though I read an article recently that I think everything is in the British Museum. They have approximately 8 million artifacts in the British Museum, and at any one time, only 1% are on display. There's like thousands of lawsuits around the world from countries trying to get back their stuff from the British Museum. So they have the original in the British Museum, and the Roman trumpet was a, a, a long tube. It was shaped like in the form of a G, 
and it had a bar that could rest on your shoulder and, and it could be played. And it was used, uh, primarily it was used in battle. Um, the idea of using a trumpet of some kind in battle goes back, obviously, you know, thousands of years. Um, it, it probably even before the, uh, the Roman Empire, but it was a way of trying to communicate with soldiers on the battlefield. How does a commander communicate with all of his soldiers on the battlefield, especially in the midst of battles, particularly as we get into modern warfare where there are cannons and there are musket balls? I also discovered watching a documentary on the, uh, the, uh, the modern American bugler uh, during the time of the American Civil War. This uh, documentary is put together by the, uh, the Gettysburg National Parks and Service. And uh, a bugler could be heard for up to one mile, even in the midst of battle. So it was a great way of communicating. And it was genuinely a way of communicating because at least um, we know this with regard to the, uh, the modern day um, 19th century American military bugler. They had a different bugle call for nearly everything. This was likely true in the Roman army as well. But we certainly know that this is true during the time of the American Civil War and prior to that, the British army had their own bugles as well. But here's what I mean by that. They actually had a particular tune, a particular bugle call for wake up, time to get up. We still hear that in the modern day army. If you live on post on some military base every morning over the loudspeaker, there is that... Uh, that wake-up call, but they also had a bugle for sick call. In other words, the uh, battalion surgeon needed time to get out of bed and get dressed and have breakfast, and then when he would get over to his medical tent and was ready to see patients, there was a bugle call that the surgeon is now in and ready to see patients. So if you were sick, you could go there. There was a bugle call for breakfast. It's now time to eat. There was a bugle call for lunch. There was a bugle call uh, for dinner. There was a bugle call for bedtime. It is lights out. It's time to go to bed. But even more importantly, there was a particular bugle call for charge in the midst of battle. And maybe even more importantly, there was a different bugle call for retreat. Every soldier had all of these bugle calls memorized. They knew them by heart. They could hear it and they knew exactly what that call was. So Paul's point is this. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound in the midst of battle, if a soldier picks up a bugle because a bugler got killed and some other soldier picks it up and just starts blowing into it, what, what does that mean? And what... I don't, I've never even heard that before. Is that charge? Is that retreat? Is that breakfast? What are we doing? Paul uses this as an illustration. An illustration. So also tongues with no interpreter, Paul is saying, is like someone who does not know how to play a bugle. Picking it up and simply blowing into it does not benefit the hearers. Because they don't know what you're saying. Because think of it this way. Each of those bugle calls is a message. It's a message. Maybe not in words, but it communicates information. It communicates breakfast. It communicates sick call. It communicates 
charge or it communicates retreat. It communicates a message that is intelligible and understandable to those who hear it. Tongues without an interpreter is like someone blowing into a bugle that has no idea what they're doing. It communicates nothing. It benefits no one. Paul then applies these illustrations to the church in two ways. And these are your points two and three. Point number two is from verse nine. Paul says, so with yourselves, right? So with yourselves. So here's, here's the, uh, the first application and we know this is because you see the exact same language at the beginning of verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says again, so with yourselves, right? Therefore, with yourselves, this is how this applies. So here's one of those moments where Paul says, I'm going to apply the message, right? So that you don't miss the point of what I'm trying to say. So Paul says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. That is, you're like someone blowing into a bugle or a trumpet who is untrained, pointless. No one knows what you are saying. You might as well be speaking into the air. You might as well be standing in a forest by yourself because no one understands what you're saying except for God. You will be speaking into the air. Again, he goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, there are doubtless many different tongues in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. If I don't know the meaning of the sounds that you're making, because that really is all language is, right? That the sounds that come out of a person's mouth have meaning to someone else, to those who know the language. It's much like a bugler. A bugle call is a language to some degree. Those who are trained with it and trained by hearing it the sounds have meaning. I understand what that sound means. It means retreat, or it means charge, or it means it's time to eat. Paul says all language has meaning. Again, here Paul makes clear, I think, that the gift of tongues is an actual language of some kind. Doubtless, there are many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. The gift of tongues, those who speak in tongues, it is an intelligible language to someone. But like all languages, Paul is being clear, without an interpreter or without understanding the language ourselves, it's simply gibberish. It does not help anyone. Then why do it? Why speak in tongues without an interpreter. It's always amazing to me how many churches today practice speaking in ecstatic tongues, is what they call it, standing around 
in a room, simply speaking in tongues, everybody at the same time, nobody knows what anybody else is saying, and somehow they think this is a blessing or God honoring. It always causes me to ask the questions, do they not read their Bible? Are they not familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians? Are they not familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 14? I mean, what is the point, really? Why do it? Paul is really asking the same question to the church in Corinth. Why would you do this? Why speak in tongues if there's no interpreter? You're not helping anybody. Now, please understand, I want to qualify my statements here. I, I do not mean to slight um, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who fall into that uh, Pentecostal, charismatic uh, type of theological uh, framework. Uh, I do believe many of them dearly love the Lord. Many of them desire to bring God glory. Many of them have a heart for the lost. But nonetheless, it begs the question, why do we see this kind of behavior in churches today? Is it biblical illiteracy or is it biblical irreverence? Because it seems to me that it's one or the other. Either they simply are not familiar enough with the text of Scripture, or they are familiar with 1 Corinthians 14 and simply disregard it. And they're not the only ones that do that. Let's, let's be fair. Um, for most of us in this room who spent any significant amount of time as an Arminian, we did that with many texts which talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation. I see it. I read it. Eh, I don't know what it means. I'm moving on. Until someone, the Holy Spirit, forced us to take notice of these words, right? So we've all been guilty of it at one point or another. But what is Paul driving at? Look at verse 12. So with yourselves, again, he's trying to apply it. Listen to what I'm saying. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul recognizes that they obviously are eager to have and to possess and to use the various gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit. That's what he means having, possessing, using the various gifts of the Spirit, because he uses that same language in chapter 12, verse 7. Back there, he said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Same phrase, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and he goes on and on and on, and he lists several different gifts of the Spirit. Because this is how the Holy Spirit manifests itself to the church. This is one of the ways. Obviously, the most important way the Holy Spirit manifests itself as the church is through conversion, right? Changing someone's life from what it was into something it now is changing the desires of a person's heart so that at one moment they want nothing to do with God. They have no desire for God. 
And instantly, in the blink of an eye, now God is all they want. That's the first, most significant manifestation of the Spirit within the church, within someone's life. But the gifts of the Spirit are also manifestations of the Spirit. So when we talk about, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, this Wednesday, when you talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, each person of the Godhead is distinct. Each possesses their own roles and responsibilities within the Godhead. This is the Holy Spirit's giving the gifts of the Spirit, manifesting himself through the gifts of the Spirit. And so Paul says, since you are eager for these gifts, which is a good thing, because remember, Paul actually encourages them to seek the gifts, right? Remember back beginning of chapter 14, he started the chapter by saying, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gift. So this is a good thing. The fact that they are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Paul says, this is a good thing. But if they are going to be eager for spiritual gifts, if they are going to seek after spiritual gifts, here is what needs to be kept in mind. Strive to excel in building up the church. That's what Paul is getting at. Paul isn't discouraging them from desiring the gifts. He's not discouraging them from seeking after the gifts. He's not even discouraging them from, from desiring the gift of tongues or using the gift of tongues. But ultimately, Paul wants them to keep in mind at the forefront of their mind, everything has to be driven by a desire to build up and to edify the church of God, not to build up myself, not to exalt myself. Is Paul's point. In other words, everything we strive for should not be for the wow factor, but to build up and edify the fellow saints. Paul wants them and us to understand that the motive, the motive of all of our desires and efforts should be to build up the church, not to impress people. And you know, many Christians struggle with that as we minister within the church. But if we love Christ, we should love his church. We should love the bride of Christ. And our desire to serve the bride of Christ. Our desire to minister to the bride of Christ should simply be a desire to glorify Christ, to honor Christ, to be a blessing to his bride, to be a blessing to his church. In the end, selfish motives, self-serving agendas, personal aspirations, have absolutely no place within the church. A church that has too many of these kinds of people, people with selfish motives, self-serving 
agendas or personal aspirations. A church that has too many, because every church has them. Every church has them because Christians who struggle with these things are everywhere. But a church who has too many of these individuals will ultimately kill a church. The church should and must be filled with people whose only desire is to serve others, to point others to Christ, and to disappear into the background. Not because we want to be introverts, not because we don't like other people and don't want to be around them, but because like John the Baptist, we should be able to echo the words of John the Baptist and say, now that the bridegroom has come, he must become greater and I must become less because it's all about pointing to Christ. We need to remember this. Today, as we prepare to adopt our constitution and bylaws and take yet another uh, formal step in becoming an organized church, in defining our fellowship, and that's really what a constitution and bylaws does. It doesn't, it doesn't make you a church. A church is where people gather together and the word of God is faithfully preached and the sacraments are uh, faithfully uh, practiced uh, and the gospel is, is preached. Um, that, that's a church. A church can be a group of people meeting out in the middle of the woods somewhere. But a constitution and bylaw uh, defines our fellowship. What, what kind of a church are we? What are our goals? What do we desire uh, to be? What are we striving to do? And so it is one more uh, step in formalizing that process and appointing our first deacon, appointing our first elder. And this is an exciting time, and we all want to see God do great things with this church and use this fellowship for his glory and honor and praise but we cannot be driven by a desire for church growth. We cannot be driven by a desire for numbers or fame or reputation. Every individual within the church cannot be driven by personal motives or self-serving agendas. But ultimately, we must pray for and strive to be the kind of church whose only desire is to edify to bless and to build up the church of God, to point others to Christ and to point others away from ourselves. That is the point that Paul wants the church in Corinth to get, and it is a point that I hope and pray that we grab hold of in our heart and in our minds and in our affections. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we reflect upon uh, the message from your Apostle Paul, who was uh, clearly guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, the message that he gave to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago,
is a message that is still so applicable even today, not only to this church, but to many churches, Lord God, to many Christians who desperately desire to be made much of, who want to impress, who want people to be wowed by their talents or gifts or abilities or their holiness or level of godliness. Father, I pray that that would not be true of any of us. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would apply this message to our lives and to this church and that all that we do, all that we are driven by is simply to minister to the saints, to edify them, to build them up and that we would shy away from anything that would do the opposite. We pray, Lord God, that you would use us for your glory and for your honor, for your praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.